What's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Hi there. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, which is home base for me. If you don't know me yet, I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose, organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. I help companies discover and articulate their purpose to thread it through their culture and operations. I work with organizations to develop inspirational leaders who create cultures where people actually want to come to work and do their best. And I provide programs like the Grab Your Gusto that enable individual team members to discover and unleash their passion and purpose at work to catalyze fulfillment, engagement, and productivity. You can learn more about me and how we can work together at EliseCortez.com or Gusto-Now.com. Let me thank my partner and sponsor, WorkProud. We are a perfect collaboration. Everyone wants to know they matter and that the work they do is meaningful and appreciated. WorkProud helps companies do just that through their mobile platform that is built to encourage employees to share stories and recognize each other's contribution. WorkProud empowers HR and business leaders to help create company cultures where all employees are inspired to feel proud of their company and proud of their work. Learn more at WorkProud.com. With us today is Lisa Gable, who is recognized worldwide as a turnaround mastermind and innovative businesswoman. As a CEO, former White House appointee, U.S. ambassador, and advisor to Fortune 500 companies, Lisa has orchestrated the successful turnaround of of private and public organizations in all industries. She's author of the brand new book called Turnaround, How to Change Course When Things Are Going South. We'll be talking about her fascinating background and early learning experiences that helped set the stage for her work today, the conditions in which many businesses find themselves today, and her four-part turnaround approach. She joins us today from Los Angeles, where she is attending the Milken Global Summit. Lisa, welcome to Working on Purpose. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being with you today. So welcome. And let us thank and give a shout out to Danny Mackey, your PR person. She's the one that connected the two of us. I love when public relations people reach out to me with a fantastic author, business leader and say, hey, how about this guest? So thank you for that, Danny. You're fantastic. So for this first segment here, I really wanted to really help our listeners and viewers just really understand you and where you've come from. It's so fascinating to me to understand how a person becomes who they are in life and all of the touch points and mentors and experiences that contribute to that person that can create a book like you did and do the work that you've been doing for the last couple of decades. So um, first, we got to talk about your dad. Right. So it seems to me that it, you literally grew up drinking from the well of business as you talk about your father in your book so beautifully as a very accomplished businessman who taught you a lot. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you got from your dad? I can. And what I should tell you is really one of the key inspirations for the book was that my father passed away in 2019. And I came across a letter that he had written to me at a very difficult time. I was a middle manager at Intel Corporation, and that's where you don't have enough power and aren't really quite sure of what direction to go and how to manage your way out. And what my father told me is that every stumbling block in his life actually became his greatest stepping stone. And he would often quote uh, Churchill's Never Give Up speech because he 
gave me the confidence to make the right decisions, learn to manage things, power my way through difficult situations. But my father had built an uh, academic institution, starting with 150 people, growing it into an organization of 7,500, a multi-billion dollar business with uh, global uh, means and, and, uh, and reach. And so when he passed, we had received hundreds and hundreds of emails and phone calls from individuals who were elected officials and uh, and also, you know, broadcasters on major television stations, as well as your average person who just got a good job and stayed in a good job and raised their family. And every single person said the same thing, that your father, my father, identified something special in them. They weren't the bright new shiny penny. They weren't the most popular kid. But what he recognized is what made them as an individual special. special. What was their special sauce? And what he did is he reached in and helped that person develop that unique capability that would allow them to leave a deliverable at every step in their way, to allow them to have impact, to allow them to lead a life with purpose. And so listening to that, reading through those messages, reading through his letter, it really did become a foundation for how I could take my own story and turn it into something people could choose. Mm, okay, a couple things to that. Uh, first, what you're talking about with regard to how, who your dad was in the world and how he touched people's lives, that's pretty much the same stuff that I teach in my programs about how to become a vitally inspire, inspiring leader to people. Just that is that you're talking about. That kind of impact is so incredible. So I really want to already honor your father for, for being that human being. So uh, that's beautiful. And the second thing I want to say is that, um, like you, both of my parents passed away in, in 2019, 28 days wow. apart in January. So it's very interesting that we are riding a similar time wave there. It is. I think it's that moment in time that we all have. And I, I call it sort of the march through life. And I know that so many of my friends who are about in the same uh, level of maturity in their job experience are also suffering that loss. And I'm now watching young employees suffer that loss. And it's difficult because they do leave a gap in our lives. But what it also does is it brings into great clarity as you're celebrating their life, what amazing people they were and how they affected each of us and, and made us who we are today. Mm -hmm. No question. Absolutely no question. And also it gives, it gives us a space to stand on too, to contribute and, and carry forth their legacy and extend, extend it through our own, which I think is really a beautiful way to thread the lives together. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you. Mm -hmm. Great. I love it. Like minds already. Um, well, now I want to get into, this is so interesting. Listeners and viewers, wait until you read the book. There's just so many amazing stories that Lisa shares about her life. And what I found also interesting, Lisa, was you talk about your early career working with the U.S. Department of Defense and in the White House. Pretty fascinating way to, to kick off a career, my dear. Why did you choose this path? When I was a little girl, I was fascinated by military systems. I know it's a strange thing. I was a little girl. I was I was a tiny little thing, and I had white go-go boots in the corner, and it was a little bit crispy. But my dad would take me to all the different uh, military sites, you know, throughout the United States from the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, and then later when I was 13, we visited similar sites throughout Europe. And my my curtains in my bedroom, as well as my bedspread, were Revolutionary uh, cannons. And, and firearms. And I think that's amazing. <laughs> it was a strange obsession for, again, for someone who was this underweight, scrawny little kid with white go-go boots and, and who was, you know, wearing the princess attire. Uh, but I was really fascinated by it. And I, when I was at UVA, 
I had the opportunity to be an intern in Washington and actually was one of the first wave of interns that came in under Ronald Reagan. So I and two other interns were featured on the front page of the Washington Post as young people coming to Washington who wanted to work within the Reagan era. And during that time, I discovered that there was a scholarship to this special program at Georgetown that was for mid-career military and intelligence personnel. And I was bound and determined because I was putting myself through school to qualify for that scholarship. And so starting with my first internship when I was 18 years old, I started writing letters to the head of the foundation. And she was very nice and tolerant. And I just kept writing every single paper at school to qualify for the scholarship. And I wore her down after three years. And so I qualified for the scholarship. And what was interesting about it is the program was taught at the Pentagon. It was a Georgetown University program. 75% of the program was taught at the Pentagon. I had gotten a position as a political appointee during the Reagan years, working under Cap Weinberger at the age of 21. So I was working in the Pentagon during the day and I was going to school at night. And my classmates were 85% men. Not only that, but they were men who were uh, lieutenant colonels and colonels up for their uh, up for their next promotion. They were long-term members of the National Security Agency and Central Intelligence Agency. My nickname was Tinkerbell because, again, I was pretty small. My feet didn't touch the ground. Uh, but but I, I learned so much, and I was given such a great opportunity. I uh, went on to work at the White House and finished my graduate degree while I was working at the White House. All right. So I just listening to that, I'm both really inspired and just a little bit exhausted. That's just awesome. It's so great. I really wanted to to exemplify that. And it, one, it's a source of inspiration, Lisa. It's really great to meet someone who has done so much with her life already um, and to showcase that, the possibilities. I really stand so much to be a beacon of possibility for my listeners and viewers. So you're fantastic to showcase. So thank you for that. Thank you. Um, next, I want to get into this notion of mentors, how important mentorship is in our life. And you talk so beautifully in your book about how you're working for Craig Barrett, who was the CEO of Intel, really helped you. And you say, I quote, he showed me how to apply engineering processes to solve problems in any setting. He helped me understand the importance of having quality improvement processes. I'd say that's gold that you got that kind of experience. It was incredible. And I had actually on on two occasions while I was at Intel, I applied to business school. I flew out to Harvard to interview and ladies looking at me going up. I just don't you know, quite see this in your future. You seem to be doing doing okay where you are. And then I I felt compelled to apply and got into two Ph.D. programs. And Condoleezza Rice actually sat me down and she said, Lisa, I know you. You would be miserable you know, go keep staying in Silicon Valley. It's the place you need to be. And what I learned from Craig was worthy of a degree from from any top tier institution, having that level of personal mentorship, someone who who really believed in you, and yet not only believed in me, but took the time to explain to me how the processes worked. And so I was this troubleshooter. And what I would do is we had a a problem with chips being stolen um, on docks in Hong Kong. I still have my security clearances. So I was off back to the intelligence agencies, meeting with them, talking about ways that we could improve and manage the export control process so we could protect things from theft, but also protect our national security interests while also opening the door for innovation. We knew that technology was going to improve. And so within that context, we went through all of the dynamics of, of sort of the ballad, uh, 
Aldridge Award processes and, and applying that to those conversations and showing and developing a new system for how the U.S. government ended up managing export controls. But he was also interested in K through 12 education. And Intel was, you know, a relatively new company at the time. It was like one and a half billion dollars. CSR, corporate social responsibility, no one was really doing that. This was in the late 80s, early 90s. And Craig knew that we would have a crisis in America if we weren't building in our school system the technological capability, that mathematical engineering skills that would be necessary to employ Americans in factories in the United States. And so he had me go around the company and evaluate how we were spending our money and who was volunteering. And what we discovered is a lot of little $5,000 gifts and $10,000 gifts were going out from different site managers. Uh, we knew that a lot of Intel employees were taking time off of work as they could uh, to volunteer in the schools. And so again, we took those systems and processes and figured out how could we really invest in this? How could we build something that was first of class? How could we coalesce all of our activity towards three primary goals, three primary things we would do in the K through 12 system. And through that process, we actually built uh, two prototype programs that ended up being in a lot of uh, magazines and books as examples of what Silicon Valley should do. And so learning again how to how to take those skill sets and apply them to export controls, take those skill sets and apply them to actually building a charter school on Intel property in Arizona. And then I was asked to understand why Intel had lost a major trademark. We lost what was called the 286-386 mark. Uh, we had gone through seven year lawsuit. We were getting ready to spend billions of dollars on the Intel Inside program. And so we wanted to develop the internal systems to ensure that any place Intel invested its money in building a brand that we could protect and own that brand. So diverse applications of the same principles. You just uttered an awful lot of value in just a short amount of time, Lisa. It's incredible to listen to you. Your mind itself, I already I already know what I'm dealing with here. It's sort of like you've got your own computer mind we're working with and drawing from today. I got it. I'm, I'm with you. Um, okay. Um, one other thing I want to talk about before we get into really the bulk of, not the bulk, but part of your book in the next segment is I want you, if you would, to talk about your 2004-2005 experience when you were appointed by President George Bush as United States Ambassador and Commissioner General to direct the U.S. Pavilion. Uh, what a colossal experience instead of massive learnings that must have been. Just incredibly complex situation you found yourself in and had to navigate through. So would you share a little bit about that for our listeners? I think it also really explicates and showcases just where a lot of your expertise has been building from. Well, it was it was interesting, and and this is an absolutely perfect day for it because we had the passing of Secretary Colin Powell yesterday, and Colin Powell was the individual that helped me uh, really get started on this journey. Uh, essentially, what had happened is that in 1998, the U.S. had participated in the World Expo, and historically, those had always been economic tragedies for the United States. We'd actually never been able to make the economics of the business work. There were always huge cost overruns, uh, dealing with the complexity of the government bureaucracy. People were making mistakes. Uh, in this particular case, an individual actually did get indicted. So that was a whole other issue. But basically, Congress threw up their hands and said, we're done. Uh, it's been, you know, since the Chicago World's Fair, these things have cost us a lot of money, a lot of lawsuits, and we're going to privatize it all. And Colin Powell was sworn into office and four months later, we were supposed to have the United States go to an expo in Germany. And he made that very tough decision to withdraw the United States from that particular event because the money hadn't been raised and he knew that there was no way to get there. 
So I walk in the door knowing none of this. It wasn't really public information. And uh, and so I, you know, they was sitting in presidential personnel and they said, we need someone who has work experience in Japan. I'm like, oh, yep, I do. We need someone who can raise money. And I'm like, yep, I can do that. I have a long history of raising money. And plus, we need somebody who has a relationship with Howard Baker. I'm like, it's a trifecta. Howard Baker, who was the U.S. ambassador at the time, was my brother-in-law's godfather. So I thought, perfect job for me. Take the job. And then I'm running around because we're, we're late to the game. We were literally, I think, the 199th or 200th country to sign up, the last country in, six months out from actually opening the doors. And I discovered we were millions of dollars in the hole. And the other thing I discovered is I tell in the book as I was driving to the airport to sign a bilateral agreement with the foreign government. And I get a phone call from the State Department attorneys and they said, you know, we've been re-looking at everything that happened in that congressional review and no one can pay for your trip. And I'm like, what do you mean? They said, we can't pay for the airplane. We can't play, pay for your time in Tokyo. We can't pay for your time in Nagoya. And so my husband was driving me and I said, what do we do? He goes, we're paying for it. He said, the relationship with the Japanese government is so important to President Bush. A lot of the geopolitical issues that were going on in the region at the time. He said, we're going to pay for it. We're going to figure it out. And so we ended up paying for that trip. And as you know, Tokyo is not inexpensive. And what that revealed to me is that there were just no systemic ways in the process that we could actually deliver a U.S. engagement in the World's Fair uh, within budget without completely rethinking how we manage that engagement. So my team and I huddled after I returned and we really focused on what's the number one thing we should be doing, and that was creating jobs in the United States. And so we quickly raised $32 million in partnerships with governors and partnerships with the automobile supply chain. Uh, the event was taking place in Nagoya, which was Toyota's headquarters. Uh, the honorary chairman of Toyota was the co-chair with uh, the crown prince, who's now emperor of Japan. And so we, we worked with, you know, suppliers and tires and paint and the leather that goes inside the cars and the audio systems. And we would do economic development events in advance, get the deals lined up. And then when we got to the expo, we had 16 governors come and we just signed deals for factories. That's all we did. And as a result, we actually ended up with a surplus. And I was very proud that the two senators got up on the Senate floor and said, and she did it not only on budget, but with no inspector general's report, which is <laughs> a really good thing to have. That's brilliant, Lisa. That is so brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. That's a perfect way to send us into our, our first break. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Cortez. We are on the, on the air with the most vibrant and jubilant Lisa Gable, the author of the new book, Turnaround, How to Change Course When Things Are Going South. We've been talking about her, her background and some of the things that have helped make her who she is. After this break, we're going to go into some of the areas as to why her book is so important and what it addresses. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. Thank you. 
This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to the program. I'd like to invite you to check out my book. We've been talking about leases, but my book, Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Ignite Passion Elevate Cause, came out last November. It's on Amazon as well. And I wrote that book to awaken readers to their passion and purpose and help transform them into the inspirational leaders like Lisa's been talking about, who enliven the workplace and elevate the contribution of business to all of its stakeholders. I use the content as the basis for my Vitally Inspired Leadership Program and my Grab Your Gusto programs. If you're just joining the program today, my guest is Lisa Gable, who is recognized worldwide as a turnaround mastermind and innovative businesswoman. As a CEO, former White House appointee, U.S. ambassador, and advisor to Fortune 500 companies, Lisa has orchestrated the successful turnarounds of private and public organizations in all industries. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Cortez. So for this segment, Lisa, and listeners and viewers, what I want to do is I want you to talk about the seven most common reasons you talk about in your book as to why projects, teams, and organizations go south. And before you do that, let me just set this up for our listeners and viewers. So as you listen to her talk, listeners and viewers, think about if any of this stuff is present in your organization. What, not if, but where, probably is a better way to say that. So the first one that you talk about, Lisa, is um, that, that organizations are built on haphazardly designed processes and structures. Say more about that. One of the things I mentioned is that when people are uh, sort of off mission and they're tweaking things to try and improve the situation, they tend to start making decisions that aren't really based on the basic plan and underlying principle of the organization. And what I refer to as an example is, let's say that you bought, had bought a house and you had that house with an architect and it has a beautiful framework to it. But then you decide to add a porch here and a driveway there, and then a chimney goes up and you're looking at the house and you take an aerial viewpoint and that's not the way that house was supposed to look because you're not sticking with the plan. And so what you wanna do is you wanna have a strategic plan in place. You want that plan to be specific. It needs to be built on quantitative goals. It needs to have a budget assigned to it. You wanna know what you're doing five years out and you want to, understand what actions are the most important actions you can take in order to both not only grow your company, but also save your company. Mm, gorgeous. I'm sure a few of us can recognize that hodgepodge of things that happen in either in a business, an organization, or a house. Uh, and I've lived in a few of those, by the way, <laughs> um, both houses and organizations. Uh, an another common reason why projects, teams, and organizations go south, you say, is those in charge believe more money can solve everything. They do. One of the things that I've seen is my entire career has been working for presidents, CEOs, and billionaires. It's kind of an interesting career path to have. <laughs> it really is. But what I've learned about it is that initially when I'm brought in, it's usually when the organization is struggling at its worst. They're trying to make a decision about whether or not they end of life the organization or whether they can save it, whether they can do that Hail Mary. And so what I've noticed is that they'll just start throwing money at it. And there's a preconception that if you give somebody enough money, it doesn't really matter the experience they have because that thing's not so hard to solve. And so you go in and you actually make the pro problem worse uh, because you're only growing the problem. You're only expanding the problem. You're not, so you're not solving the underlying cause of what's causing this organization to head south. And that's what you need to focus on is that you need to really understand at a very basic level 
And trust me, it is never what's on the surface. You know, you hear the term peeling back the onion. You have to go pretty deep sometimes until you get that aha moment and see that there is this underlying mechanism that is actually causing your economic structure not to work. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. Got it. I, I'm sure that just a few of our listeners and viewers are like, I can recognize us doing that. Mm -hmm. Know that. Okay, then the third thing you, you talk about is the economics of the business make the end goal impossible. They do. That's also, you get through mergers and acquisitions, and we've seen this, right? I mean, you see it within consumer product goods companies. We've seen it in the high-tech world. Uh, people might uh, assume that they could go in new directions because their company was number one in certain categories, but the reality is that the economics of that business are not working. The cost of doing business is too high, and what you always have to do is look at what is being produced for every dollar spent. Uh, I took over one organization, the organization that I'm currently CEO of, and they were using walks. It was a not-for-profit to raise money. It was costing $2 million to raise a million dollars. Those economics don't work for anyone. And so you really do need to understand not only the financial cost, but the people cost. How much time is it taking? How difficult is it? Life shouldn't be that difficult. And if you're using the right plan with the right structure, it won't be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Lisa, which which organization are you the CEO of? I'm the CEO of a not-for-profit called FAIR, which is the largest NGO investing in food allergy research and education. We've invested about $110 million in research to help solve the problem of life-threatening food allergies. Wow. Awesome. Just a few things going on in your life. Got it. Okay. All right. A number four year you talk about in terms of reasons projects, teams, and organizations fail or go south is that they are stuck in a cookie cutter approach to culture and management. Yeah. I think that, you know, I mean, not, not dissing other management books, but the reality is one of the comments made about my book is it's not based on a lot of theory. It's based on practice. And there are many times where I have inherited a big business plan from a McKinsey or a big you know, consulting firm, not to knock them. I've been partners with different PCGs and McKinsey's over the years. But if you have only done something in theory and you have not had to do it on the ground, sometimes you don't understand really the cost structure on the ground. Um, one of the things I like about the consumer products goods world, those are the food and beverage manufacturers, is they have their top employees uh, go and visit the stores, the little tiny stores, the mom and pop stores. And mm. I know you have a global audience. And so, you know, one of the things I did is I went into Mexico and we interviewed people at 20 stores during uh, the sugar tax that was implemented there. And we looked at the empty shelves and we talked to people about the fact they were making $100 a month and how they supported their entire family. And how financially stressed they were. So again, I think part of everything that we have to do is understand theory works great, but you have to be able to make adjustments on the ground in order to solve the specific problems that are killing your business. Yeah. And uh, that's a beautiful illustration. And I, that whole boots on the ground thing, so, so, so important and definitely away from theory. But I think also, if I remember correctly in your book, this is where you're also, when you talk about cookie cutter approaches, I believe that's also where you talk about like a lack of diversity. Is that right? It is. I mean, I think one of the things we're all talking about about today is inclusion. We want to include people with diverse backgrounds in our management structure and our people structure. You need to hear from people who are part of the experience, who bring different experiences into the mix. No one has a consumer base or a patient base that is all you know, Caucasian. 
No one has a consumer base that's all wealthy people. There are individuals in the pharmaceutical area, we talk a lot about the voice of the patient and why it's important to have the diverse voices of the patients because as an individual who has to use a thing in order to solve a problem, the barriers that they have in order to be able to do that are extremely different. So you want people who've actually lived a life that's different from the person across the hall from them that can bring both the international experience as well as domestic experience based on the region that they grew up and the culture that they grew up in. Mm, beautifully articulated, completely agree, love that. Okay, now number five here, uh, and this is actually really a heart, this is just, it kind of makes me cringe just reading this. I know this exists, I know it does. But one of the, another one of the reasons that projects, teams and organizations go south is their leaders make self-interested and empire building decisions. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I talk a lot about is that we are temporary stewards of the institutions we serve. If we are doing our job correctly, we are growing that institution to its next level of performance, and then we're leaving the institution and handing it off to someone in better shape than we found it. But we are a temporary steward. And you know we can see that in institutions that have been along for a long period of time, whether it's Harvard that I think is what, 400 years old now, or whether it's a Intel corporation that just celebrated its 50th anniversary. No one is there forever. And yet I have seen so many people walk in and they lose sight of the fact that the decisions they're making should not be about them, should not be made about their career. They need to be made only keeping in the best of the needs of that institution. What does that institution require? And I think we've also seen people that have come into an institution and used the structure to perhaps build the resume and then they go on to the next place. That's not so good either. Mm -hmm. No, it isn't. And then related to that, not the same thing at all, but the, the, there is a relation, it seems to me, is then you talk about how founders overstay their welcome. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> and I use actually one of my favorite people as an example, which was Margaret Thatcher, uh, because, you know, if she'd left a few years earlier, I think her reputation would have been different as a, as a leader. You know, there's a point where you, again, going back to your temporary steward, you need to you need to have heir appearance, which means that someone within the company you're raising up in order to take your place. We always talk about if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, who steps in and will the organization survive? Um, but you also need to understand that you you are there in a moment in time. You were selected because of your skill set to help the organization during that moment in time. That organization needs to continue to evolve. It may do so through a merger and acquisition. It may do so through gathering greater investment. It may do so by pursuing other markets. But there is a point where leaders perhaps get very comfortable where they're at, and it's hard. Who wants to walk away from a paycheck or a big payout? But at the same time, you will lose good people. And I've seen that many times, which is that if the leader stays too long, then the people underneath them can't rise up. And if people right. elevate, they're going to leave. And that's mm -hmm. not for the organization either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen that as well, many times as well. And then finally, the last thing you talk about for reasons that projects, teams, and organizations go south is you say the leaders don't recognize the project team organization is at an end point. Yeah, there's sometimes you actually have to stop. I mean, it, some organizations don't last forever. Sometimes they are there for a period of time, they ride the wave, and then all of a sudden uh, their, their core business is no longer part of the next evolution of technology, the next evolution of innovation. I've seen not-for-profits get to that point where it was a great not-for-profit, it provided a very specific need at a point in time, but all of a sudden the revenues, the donations started going down. And so you have to question, 
is this organization as it's currently comprised for the purpose for which it serves still relevant in today's cycle of innovation and economic change? And it's okay. That's what people don't realize. It's okay to merge your organization. It's okay to extend your organization to uh, other countries. It's actually okay sometimes to go, you know what? We had a great run. We did these amazing things. Now we're shuttering our doors and we're taking our intellectual property and we're going to give it to the next institution. And I've actually done that where we took an organization, we completed our task, and then we took the core uh, institutional elements, all that wonderful investment that no longer could survive with the institution as it was crafted. And we actually actually then uh, gave it to another organization and that organization is now incorporating it. So everything we invested in is still living, breathing and producing, but it's not doing it in the way that it was when we were in charge. Mm -hmm. And what a brilliant example. It makes me also come to mind here, and maybe, I don't know if you know the exact number or not, Lisa, but you talk about how, you know, organizations come and go, et cetera. Maybe they, they don't, they don't list, last forever to that end. If I'm, if I have this right, this is from another show that I did. The Fortune 500 index was of that was originally comprised. Isn't it like 50 or 53 that are left now today? Something like that? I don't know the numbers, but I just know about my own time in Silicon Valley. I know that, you know, when Sun Microsystems was the hottest thing and 3 yeah. was the hottest thing. And, yeah. you know, now it's Facebook and Google. And, uh, and you know, I, I have great heart for Intel Corporation. I think it's going to come back. I think that it's going to resecure its position. It's had a difficult time, but it's got a good underlying structure. Semiconductors are very important uh, to our future in the United States. But the reality is when I think about Silicon Valley in early 1990s of who was hot and what were the big companies everybody wanted to work for, and then, um, and then who's in charge now? And some of those companies don't exist any longer. Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. do good things while they were there. They did, but the world moved on. Mm -hmm. Indeed, things change, which is why you've written this book that you've written, which is fantastic. I really did enjoy reading it. And one day I want my signed copy, just so you know. Okay. Let's grab our, our last break here. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Lisa Gable. She's the author of the new book, Turnaround, How to Change Course When Things Are Going South. We've been talking about some of the major reasons why projects, teams, and, and organizations go south. In the last segment, we're going to talk about her turnaround method. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. I have one other bit of news for you that I want to share, and that is that in August, just about a little over a month ago now, I've released um, an anthology that I've been curating for the last couple of years. It's a collection of 25 stories from women across the globe who share their intimate details of finding their purpose and what they're now doing to serve from it. It's called Passionately Striving and Why, an anthology of women who persevere mightily to live their purpose. 
If you're just tuning in now, my guest is Lisa Gable, who is recognized worldwide as a turnaround mastermind and innovative businesswoman. As a CEO, former White House appointee, U.S. ambassador, and advisor to Fortune 500 companies, Lisa has orchestrated the successful turnarounds of private and public organizations in all industries. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Cortez. So for this last bit here, I really want to give our listeners and viewers, Lisa, a taste of what you have in your book here. So we don't have a ton of time to go over each one of these, but I did want to be able to have you queue up and and talk about each of the four steps. So take it as you like. How would you like to to share that bit? Sure. Well, I have a four-step method. And uh, as you said, what I do is I take the manufacturing principles I learned at Intel and I combine them with the art of diplomacy I learned at the State Department and the White House. Step number one is visualize your future. If you could wave your magic wand, what would you want the world to look like? And what would be your perfect world scenario? And then what you need to do is mentally understand where you are today in relationship to that scenario. Sometimes it helps to go back and actually read your bylaws. Why were you started in the first place? Did you go off course from really your uh, your primary mission? Did you add too many things on? So you start with the perfect vision, and then you have to break down the past. And what I mean by that is you begin to audit everything that you're doing. And this should be a continuous process. You're going to revisit this process throughout the life of your organization. But you want to break it all down. You want to understand what you're doing, how much it's costing, how the pieces relate to each other. Do they make sense anymore? And once you determine that, you're basically building stacks, you're looking at things, you're making a determination. Will what's currently in place, each individual piece, does that piece belong? Does it help you achieve that perfect vision that you've articulated? The next is that you create a path then from the past, from the present to the future. What you want to do is use decision trees, something we use in engineering a lot, which is a decision tree that allows you to lay things out so that everybody's on the same page. They're looking at the same imagery. You're making a decision. If we do this, then the answer is yes. If it looks like this, then the answer is Y. If it has this price attached to it, the answer is Z. And if it doesn't, your decision tree will take you to the no-go. Intel used to talk about something called end of life, and I tried to introduce that. End of life, as I said earlier, it's not a bad term. Sometimes either something doesn't fit, it's not going to help you move forward because innovation has overtaken that thing, it doesn't enable it to do what it used to do, or it no longer fits as a mechanism to get you to where you need to be. Finally, you've done all this. You've created your decision trees. You've broken down the past. You've done your ranking and rating, your ranking and rating things against each other because we all have limited financial means in order and also personal means. It's still about time. It's about your people's time. You've made all the right decisions. Now is the time to execute with speed, confidence, agility, and heart. And what I mean by that is by using these steps, stop revisiting everything. Stop going back and questioning what you're doing. You've already gone through a very systematic process in advance to make your determination on what are the primary steps that you need to take to meet jobs one, two, and three the things you must do to save your organization and grow your organization. But the other piece I add to it is heart. And in any turnaround situation, you are making very hard decisions. You have to make those decisions. You can't avoid those decisions. But the manner in which you execute them, you need to understand that your decision impacts real people. It may impact their job. It may impact their favorite program. It may impact their family. And so you'll want to communicate to that person 
that it's not in some cases that they did anything wrong. When you do massive layoffs, it's not because the employees were all screw ups. It's because the economics of the business don't work any longer. Right. The, the organization has gone in a different direction. So think about the people, be kind to them, write them letters of recommendation, support them. When they leave your organization, stay in contact with them and help them along the way. They didn't go away and you in fact may end up seeing that person again, working with that person again, they may end up being your best partner because you help them get a job in an organization that you need to partner with in order for you to accomplish your objectives. You could actually end up working for that person again. So remember that, again, we're talking about moments and times, critical decisions, but it's always about people. Mm. So Chris, okay, let me let me summarize that for our listeners and viewers. So your four steps, step one is visualize the future. Step two is break down the past. Step three, create a path from present to future. And step four, execute with speed, confidence, and heart. Yep. Okay. All right, listeners and viewers, you got some work to do. There you go. <laughs> All right. So now we, I want to get into uh, really just this notion where you really are speaking to my love language, which is really meaning and purpose. And I love what you say in your book, and I'm going to just read it the way that you put it in there. You, you write, between my time at PepsiCo and FAIR, I recognize that I thrive when I can bring together political parties, corporate competitors, and disparate constituents to get things done that benefit society, create sustainable partnerships, and provide profitable business models. I am happiest representing public-private partnerships and nonprofits and moving to the higher levels of performance. I truly love to make a difference, and I found a great place to do that at FAIR. So if you would say a little bit more about this thing that seems to be your sweet spot. I love solving complex problems, but more importantly, I love solving complex problems that help people achieve an objective that's really critical to the world. Every organization I've worked with has had an impact on people. It's made people's lives better in different ways. At FAIR, what we're doing is we're creating new therapies and diagnostics to help solve the problems of a disease that creates great anxiety for children and their families. And so what I have learned is I've learned to turn down jobs that look good on paper. We're all about resident building. But as I've gotten older, what I've recognized is I don't need that check on the box on my resume. What I need is I need purpose and passion. I need to do the things that make me happy. And I also need to recognize what's my special sauce. And my special sauce is bringing people together, creating that bipartisan network, forming partnerships, aligning incentives to change, getting people to align towards a common goal, and then having impact. And so that's my goal. And I hope that's what you learn as you read the book. Mm. Lisa, what's so beautiful about that? I mean, so much of what I have come to do over the last, gosh, four years, five years is, is about awakening passion and purpose in people because Lisa, I'd be out speaking to audiences and I would ask the audience, what are you passionate about? And there would be this registration where they realized they didn't know the answer. They didn't know what they were passionate about. I'm like, no, 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 no. You and I both lost a parent, our parents, in 2019. And one precious life, and you don't know what you're passionate about? Let's get to that, right? So one of, one of the things I already love about featuring you is getting to showcase what does it look like when you're passionate about what you do. When I started my research for my PhD years ago, I researched how people experienced meaning in their work. What did it mean to their sense of identity? And then later I added on that and, and I found these 15 modes of engagement. And I started this radio program back in early 2015, in part because I wanted to bring people on who were passionate about their work so that I could show them as examples because people didn't believe you could be passionate about your work. Isn't that sad? It's sad. And one of the things today, we are in such a complex environment. And 
and and people are are anxious and they're kind of retreating. And we live in the greatest democracy in the world. We do. Each of us can pick up the mantle of leadership. And we saw people do that during COVID. We saw truck drivers do it. We saw grocery stores uh, workers do it. We saw physicians assistants and nurses in hospitals. It doesn't matter where you are because each of us can pick up the mantle of leadership. Each of us can make a difference. And we, we need to. We need to for our country, for the world. We need to partner together. And by doing so, we can all help accomplish great things. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's to that end, Lisa, one of the things that I've been speaking about, and, and really to anybody who will listen to me, any any audience, whatever, is the world desperately needs your gifts, because especially now as we're re- re- rebuilding the world, right, everybody matters. And when and here's the really cool thing, ladies and gents, when you do contribute that, that way, when you do make it, when you do matter, that is one of the things that is the most fulfilling about your, your life. When you give, and it's called self-transcendence in, in logotherapy. When we transcend ourselves to to serve other people, it's one of the best feelings we could possibly get. It's just, it's it's better than, almost better than life. <laughs> so so you being example, Lisa, are fantastic. And um, I really, I, I it's one of the great things about hosting the show is that it allows me to be, an, you're my ongoing university, all my guests, or my ongoing university because I read the book cover to cover and then I, I share you and my learnings with the listeners. So you're part of my education. So you know that this 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 show, as you said before, is listened to by people across the world, which I love. Um, and it's really about trying to create a place where we can we can about creating a world where we can create workplaces where people actually want to come to work, give their best. We create inspirational leaders like your father and we do business that betters the world. Knowing that, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Partnership is key. Like I said, we are in such a complex time. We as countries need to join together. We as people need to join together. You don't need to wait for the leaders of the country to come up with the solution. We can do it ourselves. There are amazing non-governmental organizations out there. There are amazing companies doing incredible work in business diplomacy across agriculture, climate change, sustainability. We have the capability to join with each other and make a difference in the world. So let's do it. I'm in. Thank you, Lisa. It is so great to have you on the show and share you with my listeners and viewers. Thank you so much for jumping in, especially when I know you're in a hotel and you're in between conversations and trying to attend a global summit. Thank you for fitting us in. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was really an honor to be with you today and talking about my favorite topics. Awesome. And thanks again to your PR person, Danny Mackey, who brought you to me. Thank you again, Danny, for finding her and sending her my way. So listeners and viewers, if you want to learn more about Lisa Gable or her new book, the best way to do it is just go to turnaroundbook.com. It's now on the screen as well. And thanks again to our partnering sponsor, WorkProud, which helps companies build a platform where your workforce receives meaningful feedback and thanks for their work from people across the company. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always get to be a recorded podcast. We were on the air with Dr. William Smith, learning about his decades-long pursuit to develop a relational model of organizational development that is anchored in purpose and fueled by appreciation, influence, and control. Incredibly powerful to hear how his life's work has unfolded through his experiences working at the World Bank and the United Nations. Next week, we'll be on the air with Dalton and Steffi Devarkaran, talking about the work they are doing through their nonprofit they founded called Ethne which helps fight human injustices and empowers vulnerable women and children. 
promises to be an inspiring conversation. Join us. See you there. Remember that works at least a third of our life. So let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose. Thank you.